Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. probably born with a hooker's mentality because I do believe men should pay for everything. 
I think men should pay for girls' houses, cars, diamonds. I don't think girls should have to do anything. Girls should have fun, that's it. Heidi Fleiss. It starts like anything else. You know, you work for a law firm, and the next thing you know, some client says, listen, I don't like the firm, but I like you, so you set up your own office, and now you're the law firm. Heidi accumulated a lot of numbers, and all of a sudden, people started calling her up, and it started. Ivan Naj, producer. Previously on Heidi World... Heidi Fleiss has gone from hard-partying teenage girl to 20-something madam, building a high-end L.A. escort service whose smart branding, sheen of exclusivity, and good word of mouth takes it viral with rich male clients eager to spend it all on young, beautiful women. Welcome to Heidi World. Chapter 4, How Heidi Got Madame Alex's Little Black Book and What She Did With It, Late 1980s, Early 1990s. It's 1989, and Madame Alex is forced out of the game and put on probation, taking her out of the madaming business for at least 18 months. Her young protege, Heidi Fleiss, has stepped in to take her place and take over the high-end escort business on L.A.'s west side. In 1990, Heidi somehow ends up in possession of Alex's black book. Alex fervently believes that Heidi and Yvonne Naj have stolen her black book and are trying to take over her empire. Fuming from the bed at her downsized new home, Madame Alex starts plotting her revenge on Heidi. She is not wrong that Heidi and Yvonne are back together. After her friend Wendy Tarr is murdered, Heidi is a mess and ends up back in the arms of the man she despises. He was the most sickest thing on earth, and I was history. Then I had this horrible experience, and I went back to him for a few months, and it was the biggest mistake of my life. Like the functionally useless black book Alex had received herself when she bought into the madaming business from a customer at her flower shop, Alex's black book is full of outdated information by the time Heidi gets full access to it. The girls on Madame Alex's roster are half retired and half out of style. None of them are the type of girls Heidi wants representing her in her new solo business venture. But there is some useful information in the black book the numbers of a few major player customers that Heidi immediately calls to let them know that Alex is done for and there's a new girl running the town, Madam Heidi Fleiss. When a guy tells you how much he loves you and wants to have babies with you, he really means I love having sex with you for free. Free meaning no obligations. While Heidi had never thought about going into the sex business before meeting Alex, she has now seen what kind of profit and prestige such an operation can pull in. She likes the taboo aspect of madaming, and the job involves lots of money and attention from powerful men, two of her personal obsessions. Furthermore, Heidi feels she can do a much better job than Madame Alex, whose personal taste in everything has always been a tad out of touch. 
just as the uptight men in suits of the 60s had wanted Alex to provide a taste of the young hippie girls they kept hearing about, Heidi caters to 80s men who want 90s Gen X babes, young, cool, and casual about sex. And Heidi knows exactly how to cater to their needs. I'm not a sexually oriented person that's sexually obsessed all the time, but somehow I just know a lot about it. I'd get more enjoyment off a successful business than off a night of good sex, whereas most people would choose a night of great sex with somebody. As long as there's money, I don't care. I will do anything. I'll be really upfront about that. I don't care about being famous. I'll go where the money is, and if fame comes along with it, that's just fine. If I wanted to be famous, I would have tried to be an actress or sports. I would have tried to be something else besides in an illegal business, which I never thought I was going to get famous from. One day, I thought I'll get in trouble and have to pick something else. For her new roster of employees, Heidi seeks out girls with a different style from the fusty Beverly Hills glamour favored by Madame Alex. She wants girls who are sleek, modern, and sophisticated, it girls for the incoming new decade, the 1990s, with a few clients to spread the word and the business acumen she'd learned from Madame Alex, Heidi is ready to go. She has a photographer friend scout girls for her, and word of mouth spreads through L.A. Heidi understands that there are covert networks by which beautiful young women meet rich older men. One of them is Playboy magazine. The rock stars and actors flip through it like it's a catalog. They see a picture of a woman they want to meet. It's one phone call and they can marry her. And that's why the girls want to be in Playboy in the first place. It's a two-way street because the women want a meal ticket and the men want a fantasy girlfriend up to their exacting physical standards. Directors and other rich guys pass along the knowledge that you can call up a magazine and get a model's info to set up a date. This brings to mind the story about Alfred Hitchcock seeing Tippi Hedren for the first time in a TV commercial and calling her in for an audition. Is it creepy? Sure. Does it happen? Constantly. Some of these girls who hit the jackpot find someone at a vulnerable time in his life. It could be that the people who handle a celebrity are telling him it would be a good time to get married. I've seen even screwed up gold digging women stabilize a guy and help him. Having grown up around Hollywood herself, Heidi has seen fame firsthand and knows that it can be as corrosive as it is glamorous. Being with a power player is exhausting. It's so fleeting. There's a lot of anxiety because there's always someone more famous than you who's making more money. It takes a certain type of woman to handle the reality of being with someone who's always worried about staying on top. It's the type who has no agenda of her own except to be a Hollywood wife. Even though there are other madams competing to take over Madam Alex's spot, Heidi rises immediately to the top, nabbing all of the biggest fish clients for herself, producers, agents, actors. In the beginning, I'd meet 30 girls a day. Maybe I would only like one. Maybe I would like five. Heidi Fleiss starts running her maddening business out of a fairy tale cottage just off the trendy Melrose Avenue strip. 
Soon enough, there are luxury cars pulling up to Heidi's house in the otherwise quiet neighborhood every single night. She also starts throwing parties, mixers, if you will. Some of them are business-oriented, but often she just parties with her friends. She pays the new Heidi girls in cash as well as checks, some of which are made out directly to them from real estate and movie production companies. She charges John's $1,500 a session and takes a 40% cut. She never withholds money from her girls, which means she never saves anything herself. She is as addicted to spending as she is to gambling. I change the rules. I tell the guys, you get what you pay for. You can find girls for less, but they're not the best. Mine are the best. I saw it as a way the girls could really take advantage of men. And we did exactly that. Every man was taken advantage of. I tell the girls, don't ever sell out. Leave if you want. You're the boss. You're in charge. Madam Alex is, understandably, pissed. She feels betrayed by Heidi. What took her years to build, I built in one. It's just hard for Madam Alex to accept her ship has sunk and she's been forced out. When Heidi World returns, we'll take a look at the day-to-day operations of a high-end escort service. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. 
you just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Heidi World. To get a sense of what day-to-day operations were like for Heidi... We're going to read from Madam Alex's book, Madam 90210. Madam 90210 is written by Alex in the first person as an autobiography, but part of it is written as veiled pseudo fiction, presumably for legal reasons. 
Co-author William Stadium uses a mix of pseudonyms and real names of famous people to paint a portrait of the high-end escort world. I will also do my best to connect the dots of who is being talked about when I can. Also, it might all be totally made up. No promises. Heidi appears under the name Lissa. The first section of the book is called The Life in a Day, 1987, and it tells the story of an unnamed A-list playboy, now a married father, who heard one of his old flames had started working for Alex. Described as the girlfriend to many stars and former wife of one, this woman was now a high-end call girl. The book calls her Lynn Armstrong. For her compensated reunion with her ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend, Lynn picks up a pizza at the top of Mulholland Drive at a trendy Italian place off Beverly Glen Canyon that we passed on my junior high bus route called Fabricini's. Allegedly while picking up the pizza, Lynn says she randomly spots Steven Spielberg, Clint Eastwood, Warren Beatty, and Gary Hart, the Democratic frontrunner, soon to be disgraced in a sex scandal. She does not specify if they are together. I do believe that they would all be there at the same time, though, because that place has always been a total hotspot because it's one of the only restaurants in the canyon and the food is really good. They have a great knockoff version of the La Scala chopped Italian salad that everybody in L.A. loves. Lynn didn't want any of the famous people, some of whom she knew, to see her, lest they put it together that she was now a pro at the age of 28. She wore high heels and a black cocktail dress, which came from, quote, a French boutique run by Persians in the Beverly Center. Lynn had been a rock star wife, a brunette rarity in the blonde world of rock trophies. Rock stars in the 80s were at the top of the charts and the hearts of the girls who came to LA to take their shot at love and fortune. Here's a representative quote from the book. The game of Hollywood pickup was a lot like bridge. Just as spades beat hearts, music beat movies. The wildest dream was not to win an Oscar, but to sing backup for Axl Rose. So the woman they're calling Lynn had married a big rock star, then cheated on him with an actor who she was now going back to for more under different circumstances. Her friends didn't understand the appeal of the actor who was older and less cool than her rock star ex. Lynn is met at the door of the mansion by the famous actor, who they call Jed Revel, and his new girlfriend, who they call Ellie. Jed shows off his new Ed Ruscha painting and their new baby. Ellie's from Utah and is pretty, but seemingly just a beautiful mirror to reflect Jed back to himself. Jed and Ellie are both in AA, so Lynn politely excuses herself to the bathroom for two lines of Coke and a Valium. In the enormous kitchen, Jed took a six-pack of Diet Coke for the sober crowd and a bottle of champagne for Lynn. Then he invites them back into the screening room for the main event. That's right, baby, a screening of a VHS of the Bob Dylan movie Hearts of Fire, which had bombed after the director died of a heart attack during production. Then Jed asks Lynn what it was like to fuck Bob Dylan. She asks why he'd say that, and he says because she loves having sex with rock stars and Jewish intellectuals. She says, I would have loved to fuck Bob, but Bob never wanted to fuck me. You can guess where things go from here. Like all people talking about Bob Dylan, they get really horny and start having a threesome and talking about how great everyone's tits are. It was somewhere around this point that I began to doubt the journalistic credentials of this part of the book, which reads entirely like horny 1980s LA fan fiction and is very good if you're into that. But... 
For the purposes of telling the story, I'm going to skip ahead to the relevant parts about Alex and Heidi, a.k.a. Lissa. Despite the rumors, there was no literal black book, says Madam Alex. Alex claims the so-called black book was really just a mental Rolodex in her own head of about 300 girls. According to Alex, she had their phone numbers memorized. She admits there might have been some phone numbers on slips of paper, but nothing so organized as an actual address book. There was, however, a hot file of her 50 top earners. Alex sorted the hot file into categories, racehorses, which were the superstar girls the clients loved, and discoveries, newer girls she was hoping to turn into racehorses. Alex knew Hollywood was obsessed with novelty and youth, so she made sure to constantly bring on fresh talent. Some of these girls would try working a trick or two and realize they weren't made for the lifestyle. Others would last a month. Most girls didn't make it a year before dispatching for other careers. Alex maintained a rotating roster of 300 girls total, and the Johns never stopped calling. Alex has a not great habit of referring to her girls as creatures. She also disparages the girls of LA as long on looks, but short on class. The Johns, Alex says, craved sublime bimbos. They wanted Marilyn Monroe, not the real person who's smart and complicated, but their idea of Marilyn Monroe from movies. A soft, sweet sex kitten with a pillowy bosom. In Hollywood, she says, they wanted their idea of Hollywood. The book then brings in a character who clearly seems to be Heidi, but some of the details are obscured or blended with other stories. The character's name is Lissa Trapp, and while the book describes Lissa as an Italian-American girl from the wrong side of the tracks in Beverly Hills, some of the specific details line up too clearly with Heidi for it to be anyone else. Alex had a group of young, wealthy girls from Beverly Hills working as hookers that she dubbed, in her usual tasteless fashion, the Jap Pack, because they were Jewish-American princesses. I'm just telling you what she says in the book. The Jap Pack are described as being rich girls who loved nightclubs, Porsches, Versace, and Coke, mostly went to UCLA on and off, and wanted even more money than their rich parents gave them. This sounds a lot like the Beverly Hills girls that Heidi was jealous of. Here's how they introduce Lissa Trapp, a.k.a. probably Heidi Fleiss. Lissa Trapp, one of Alex's favorite girls, was a stepsister of the Jap Pack. Lissa adolesced in a permanent state of envy, bitterly jealous of her classmates' baby Mercedes and 20 pairs of Gucci's and five-digit monthly bills at Neiman Marcus and cool Moroccan Coke dealers. Her classmates were equally envious of Lissa's sultry, olive-skinned beauty, her hypnotic eyes. Hers were mad, crazy eyes. But in this case, madness was an aphrodisiac. Lissa didn't care about accolades. She didn't even care that much about boys, although she enjoyed her effortless power over them. Lissa took a perverse, sadistic pleasure in making them act like fools for her favors. My body is a temple, she would quip. The temple of doom. She once seriously considered getting a tattoo over her Mons Veneris of the Dante line about another inferno. All hope abandoned, 
Ye who enter here. What Lissa was convinced would bring her true happiness had nothing to do with love or sex. All she wanted was to be Jewish and rich, like the Beverly Hills in crowd. What Lissa's parents couldn't give her were the cars, the clothes, the coke, the comfort, and the confidence that came with never having to worry about money. Money was all Lissa worried about, simply because she was in such blinding proximity to it. Although she undoubtedly could have gone to a successful white-collar career, Lissa was terminally impatient. She couldn't wait to be rich. Beverly Hills rich. Lissa was smart and conniving and managed to find Alex and quickly became one of Alex's stars. Lissa, a child of Los Angeles, was as starstruck as any gawker on Hollywood Boulevard. But Lissa didn't worship stars because they were stars. She worshipped stars because they were money. Then there is a dubious slash highly fictionalized erotic encounter between Lissa and a famous New York actor the book calls Harris Fox and describes as thus. In the endless war between New York and Los Angeles, Harris Fox was one of the most frequently given reasons why New York was the better place. This short, ethnic, introspective celebrity whose public persona was so anti-LA that he might not even turn right on a red light on general principle had become a major consumer of Alex's California girls. He claimed he came to Alex out of sheer boredom when he was doing a studio film. There were no streets to walk, no egg creams to drink, nowhere to go after 11 o'clock. Hookers were the only sign of life in this city of the dead. I personally think Harris Fox is meant to remind us of a director whose name rhymes with Schmitty Schmallen or possibly an actor whose name rhymes with Bustin Offman. Anyway... Harris Fox pays Lissa to eat Reese's Pieces and berate him about his smallness while he goes down on her. Whatever works. Then Lissa is off to her next gig, shitting on a glass coffee table while a famous producer lays underneath watching. Lissa was one of Alex's pets. Alex loved Lissa's sense of humor, her flair for gossip, her greed. Lissa adored making money as much as Donald Trump or Mike Milken did, as much as Alex did. That was their bond. Also, Alex was very maternal towards the young Lissa, who had just turned 20 and turned her back on her own mother. Lissa had great potential, and Alex wanted her to realize it. In return, Lissa was Alex's own truffle hound, Alex's eyes and ears. Because Alex, who was bedridden with heart problems and diabetes, rarely left her home. She relied on her girls to tell her everything that went on with their dates. No girl was a better, more vivid reporter than Lissa. There was a true symbiosis between the two women. In some ways, Alex and Lissa were the same woman. Alex the brains, Lissa the body. Their adventures were one. In her first year with Alex, Lissa had earned nearly $150,000. She was one of the most highly paid 20-year-old women in the world. This was amazing for someone who had dropped out of school, 
who wasn't tall enough to be a model and couldn't sing. Yet Lisa had nothing left. Not after her 3,000 a month rent, the BMW, the clothes from the Beverly Center, and of course, the drugs. There was nothing left and nothing else to do but give blowjobs, shit on glass tables, and dump on movie stars. What was it going to be like at 30 when she developed real taste? And how much more could she make as a call girl? Most tricks were $300 to $500. The $1,000 Harris Foxes were rare. And Alex had never sent her on a $2,000 overnight, much less a $10,000 weekend. On a great day, three tricks, Lisa would gross $1,500 and net $900, but she usually had no more than two great days a week. Some days, all she could eke out was a $300 missionary. With $100 to Alex, the remaining $200 wouldn't even buy her the shoes she needed at Charles Jourdain. Yet at $150,000 in a year, Lisa was close to a call girl's peak. It wasn't going to get that much better, and it might get a lot worse. Lissa wasn't one for planning for the future, but as she saw it, 10 years from now, 150K wasn't going to get her much further than being a Beverly Hills bag lady. That the bags were from Neiman Marcus didn't make that future seem any more appealing to her. Okay, a rare moment of personal reflection here. Alex is painting Heidi as an extremely materialistic person, but providing context some of the other sources lack. Heidi definitely wasn't poor, but she was not Beverly Hills rich, and she ran with a privileged party crowd. I went to a fancy private school in LA with some of the richest kids in the city who had all kinds of things they didn't earn, and my feeling is that proximity to this kind of insane wealth can sort of radicalize you in a couple directions. For someone like Heidi, it inspires a kind of envy that manifests itself as action, a determination to claw one's way up into the comfort of the upper, upper classes. So I think that class anxiety in a place which is as segregated and extreme in terms of wealth and poverty as Los Angeles crystallizes in everyone at some point in a couple of ways, either aspirationally or as a desire to demolish the entire system. Heidi Fleiss is like a lot of children of the 70s and 80s who came up in the wreckage of the attempted leftist revolution of the 60s and took sort of a nihilistically cynical viewpoint in reaction. The main example of this trend is Michael J. Fox's young conservative character, Alex P. Keaton, on 80s sitcom Family Ties, which I've never seen. Heidi was clearly drawn to money like a moth to a flame from a young age. She was a born hustler whose addictive personality matched perfectly with gambling. She gambled high and for a while she won. And that's why I think stories like Heidi's about people who scam their way into the American dream, movies like Scorsese's Goodfellas and Casino or Lorraine Scafari as hustlers are so popular because they acknowledge that the American dream of wealth and comfort is a scam and that the only way to achieve it is to scam your way into it like the gentry did. Now, the difference between Heidi Fleiss and someone like Jordan Belfort from The Wolf of Wall Street or Henry Hill from Goodfellas is that Heidi wasn't exploiting anyone or enabling violence. The sex work ring that Heidi Fleiss ran was entirely consensual, and like Alex, Heidi took a 40% cut. 
Working for Heidi was seemingly completely different from working for a traditional pimp. There was no threat of violence and the work environment wasn't abusive. The only people being juiced were rich men who gave it up willingly. It's now 1991. With Madame Alex out of the way and nobody else that serious in the high-end escorting lane, Heidi zooms ahead of any competition, past any lingering memories of Madame Alex's brand, into the go-go 1990s. She is where she belongs now, partying with stars and players, sashaying past velvet ropes to the VIP section, choosing what car to drive from her stable, a Corvette, the Benz, or the 1967 white Mustang convertible her ex, Bernie Kornfeld, gave her. She stole my business, my books, my girls, my guys, and now finally she's stolen my jewels. She's told people she wants to be the Madame Alex of her generation. Ha! She'll never be me. When I gave it up, it took seven ladies to do what I did all by myself. Alex Fleming, Madame. There's an old saying in Los Angeles that you can get into almost any party if you bring a few beautiful young girls, especially if you are also a beautiful young girl yourself. Heidi had a vision for what the ideal Heidi girl looked like, just as Madame Alex had a more outdated set of styling rules for hers. Like Alex's, Heidi's specifications were based on her own taste and ideals— Heidi's dream employee was a girl who looked naturally expensive, the way rich girls do, groomed, styled, chic, but not try hard. And because Heidi was who she was, the Heidi girl had a bit of Gen X grit, a sharp stare maybe, or a deadpan wit. Her ideal look was described as clean cut, perfect, like she was born and raised in Beverly Hills. So by 1991, Heidi Fleiss has somewhere around 500 clean-cut and perfect, but also cool and sexy girls working for her. Word spreads among CEOs, producers, actors, rock stars, and anyone else who can afford it that Heidi's girls are the best. Heidi charges clients about $1,500 a night, which is about $2,800 today, of which she took 40%. She was soon clearing $300,000 a week, which would be slightly over half a million now. The men gave huge gifts. One girl got two apartment buildings completely paid off, no mortgage. Now they're income for her. She owns apartment buildings. At prices like those, the sex had to be unreal. As with all luxury branding, Heidi's pricing said to customers that they were being offered something better than what the plebes buying pussy on the street could get. Meanwhile, Heidi reported an income of $33,000 a year and listed her job as counselor on her 1992 tax returns. When you are a madam, you are always working. That is the way it has to be if you want to be successful in this business. The more people pay, the more they tend to believe it is worth. And when you are dealing in a commodity that is in as high of a demand as sex, sell to the highest bidder. Heidi was catering specifically to a subset of rich Hollywood dickheads coming off the greed is good 80s in film. 
These were the archetypal American psycho yuppies. They had the most expensive sound systems, the most expensive cocaine, the most expensive glass brick mansions in the hills. Naturally, they also wanted to buy the most expensive sex. It worked like a charm. Heidi and her Heidi girls, as she called them, were in demand all over the wealthy enclaves of L.A., Instead of a black book, she allegedly kept her client list in a 28-page red Gucci planner. It was a lot of fun. Of course, looking back, you see how stupid you were. It's easier to look at all your mistakes, but I definitely say if you're going to live in L.A., I don't see how anyone can do it better than I did. You want to go out to every nightclub. You want to meet famous people. Have sex with different people, eat at the best places, all that kind of stuff. And I don't see how it could have been any more fun. That is for sure. When Heidi World returns, Heidi decides to buy a house in the hills. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Heidi World. Heidi Fleiss is making so much money, she decides to buy a house. And not just any house, her dream house. An enormous $1.6 million mansion that was formerly owned by Michael Douglas with a Beverly Hills zip code at the very top of the Santa Monica Mountains on Tower Grove Drive. This was another trick she learned from Madam Alex. Clients need to be impressed by your zip code. Even if Madam Alex may have overestimated how the clients received her army of cats and collections of porcelain kitsch. The Tower Grove Drive's house's location is perfect for Heidi. It's high enough above the city to see the glittering lights below, but just half a mile from her stomping grounds on Sunset Boulevard. 
It's remote enough to throw raucous parties without pissing off neighbors or attracting cops, but it's close enough for clubbing. To buy such an expensive house herself at such a young age, Heidi needs a co-signer, so her father, Paul Fleiss, agrees to help her out. He puts his name down after being convinced by Heidi the house is an investment property. Remember, Heidi has told her parents she's working as a realtor like her friend's mother, Elaine Young. It seems like her parents had no reason not to believe her. She was making a lot of money, sure, but high-end realtors were known to. She wanted to buy an expensive house, but it seemed like she could afford it with how well she was doing. The whole family was very proud of her for finally following through on something. Not long after Heidi and her operation are firmly ensconced at her new mansion, Madame Alex calls Heidi and says she will have her revenge. She's on probation after a plea bargain, but her legal bills have gobbled all her madaming profits and the catering business she started is not taking off. Rather than take this as a warning shot from Madame Alex and lay low collecting her checks, what does Heidi Fleiss do instead? She throws a gigantic house party for Mick Jagger to christen her new place in the hills. There was one party for Mick Jagger and the house just got thrashed. There were women climbing up the side of the hill to get in. She knows major, major people, but I never asked what was going on in that um, other part of her life. I figured that was her private thing. Victoria Sellers, Heidi's best friend. Allegedly, guests at the birthday party for Mick Jagger included Jack Nicholson, Prince, Johnny Depp, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Because I am an incredible journalist, I decided to message Flea, the bassist from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who follows me for some reason, and ask if he remembered anything about the party at Heidi Fleiss's house. Flea, who was kind enough to respond, said he'd never been a guest of Heidi's, which means either he wasn't at this party, but maybe some other peps like Anthony Kiedis were, He doesn't remember it because it was the early 90s and he was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers, or he didn't know it was Heidi's house or her party. The last one also seems plausible because this just sounds like the kind of legendary rager where nobody knew who was throwing it, just that it was a Beverly Hills mansion party and that Mick Jagger was there. Flea did also say that while he had no recollection of being at this party, Heidi's father, Dr. Paul Fleiss, was his daughter's pediatrician proving my theory once again that L.A. is a small town, especially Los Feliz. Flea also wrote a great book called Acid for the Children that you'll like if you like this podcast that's also about California children of the counterculture. In 1991, someone at Columbia Pictures allegedly asks Heidi to bring some girls to the Columbia Pictures holiday party that year, which she allegedly does. She allegedly supplies some girls for Charlie Sheen's birthday party, And through it all, of course, she goes out clubbing. Heidi can be found regularly at Monkey Bar, a windowless restaurant on Beverly co-owned by Jack Nicholson, where the stars hang out. Heidi and her crew also frequent a West Hollywood dance club called The Roxbury, which is the club that the SNL sketch and movie A Night at the Roxbury refer to. In December of 1992, Heidi's friend Bonita Money, an actress who appeared in Dr. Dre's Let Me Ride video and later executive produced the DMX and Jet Li movie Cradle to the Grave, gets in a public shoving match outside the club with Beverly Hills 90210 actress Shannon Doherty, 
after her castmate Brian Austin Green supposedly steps on Money's boyfriend's toes. One night, on a double date with Victoria Sellers, Heidi ends up hanging out at On the Rocks, a room on the second floor of the Roxy used occasionally for parties. This gives Heidi another idea, a club that she can use as her office to screen clients and host parties. As I looked around the room, I noticed it resembled a cozy living room. It had deep, thick, comfortable couches, unique shaped tables, sexy candle lighting, and custom-made area rugs. It had a long bar on one side of the room that faced huge windows overlooking the action on the Sunset Strip. I thought this would be the perfect setting for a nightclub. Luckily, Victoria's stepfather, Lou Adler, owns the Roxy. So together, Victoria and Heidi take over the upstairs part and start a club at On the Rocks. Heidi's sojourn into the nightclub industry lasts about six months, but it helps cement her brand amidst LA's hard-partying rich clientele. On the Rocks made my business easier for a few reasons. The word spread that if a girl wanted to meet Heidi, she could go to On the Rocks on a certain night. This cut down on all the traffic at my house. On many nights, I'd walk in and look at the area where I sat, and there would be 20 to 30 girls waiting to meet me. Sometimes it was uncomfortable turning down a girl in my house, but the activity in the nightclub, that made it easier. It was a party. We let in who we wanted, and a lot of people were upset. A lot of people were jealous because we had the key. Like Madame Alex before her, Heidi understood that she was selling men a fantasy image as much as a material good. They wanted to see the hedonistic Hollywood Babylon and the L.A. party girls they'd heard so much about, and Heidi knew just what to show them. When men came in from out of town, they'd call me and ask, where is the cool place to go? They wanted to see the beautiful girls and the hip people, and I'd tell them to go to On the Rocks. All the different people frequenting the club made it the quintessential L.A. fantasy. I'd make sure they were treated well, and they'd make sure I was paid well. Heidi may be having the greatest success of her life with her career, but it's not translating to better odds in her love life. She is still entangled with the disgusting Yvonne Naj in a toxic on-and-off relationship where he regularly abuses her verbally and physically. On a break with Yvonne, Heidi reconnects with a high school sweetheart and thinks real romance is finally nigh until it turns out he just wants her help paying off an $80,000 gambling debt. Madame Alex, meanwhile, is having her own financial woes. She had to sell as many of her assets as she could to pay her legal bills. After Madame Alex vacated 1654 Doheny Drive, it was bought by Shannon Doherty, who allegedly trashed the place and moved out in the middle of the night with $14,000 in rent due. In November of 1992, Madame Alex has a friend get robbed for the bag of precious jewels she had stashed at his house. She is fully convinced that Heidi is responsible, although it will turn out to be completely unrelated. When Alex's nest egg of jewels gets stolen, she calls up the LA Times from her bed and talks to a reporter named Sean Hubler. 
Alex tells Hubler that she had half a million dollars worth of diamonds, sapphires, pearls, and Cartier watches in a tan Louis Vuitton bag. The bag of jewels was stashed at the house of her friend, producer David Niven Jr., the son of British actor David Niven and, allegedly, one of Alex's own paramours. David Niven Jr. tells police that two bagmen showed up at his house pretending to be UPS delivery, held him at gunpoint, and hogtied him, asking for Alex's bag of jewels. He directed them to the guest bathroom of his Bel Air mansion where Alex's jewels were in the Louis Vuitton bag. They took the bag and ran, leaving Niven to wiggle himself free and call the police. The LAPD wouldn't confirm Alex's story and told Hubler that Alex was an unreliable narrator. When Alex talks to Sean Hubler, she directly names Heidi Fleiss as the person she thinks contracted the gunmen to steal the bag of jewels and then gives Sean Hubler Heidi's number. This is where I fucked my whole life up. Heidi not only picks up the phone, she unwisely starts talking to Sean Hubler. She must have known talking to the press was a bad idea, but she can't help herself. She wants to defend herself to clear her own name. And she and Alex are locked in a sort of toxic duel of egos. So Heidi gets on the phone with Sean Hubler to tell her about what Alex calls the whore wars. Furthermore, she invites Sean Hubler to come talk to her at home on the condition that her name not be used in the story. Heidi is also very paranoid about wiretapping because she and Yvonne Naj are allegedly wiretapping each other and their various enemies for future blackmail. Without naming her, Hubler describes exactly the Heidi we have come to know. In the spare, elegant living room of her Benedict Canyon home, Adam's rival denies any connection with the theft. Brash as your kid's sister, dark-haired and stick-figure thin, the new Beverly Hills madam, if madam is what you can call a 20-something party girl in boots and jeans, sinks back into the cushions of a designer love seat and puts on a feral smile. Sean Hubler, journalist. Hubler clocks Heidi's decor, too. A copy of Penthouse magazine on the coffee table with a member of the Brat Pack on it, probably the January 1993 issue with Charlie Sheen on the cover. There are young, tan, blonde women hanging out ambiently at the mansion. The phone rings off the hook, but Heidi only picks up one call from her father, Paul Fleiss, and says she'll call him back in a little bit. Heidi tells Sean Hubler she didn't steal Alex's nest egg. She doesn't need to. Her maddening business is going great. Alex just can't deal with the fact that she's done. This isn't the first time Heidi makes the mistake of talking to the press, and it won't be the last. Despite her huge profit intake from madaming, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, Heidi spends ever faster than she earns, which will come to bite her in the ass later. In October 1992, she almost blows her cover when an unknown woman calls a fancy Beverly Hills clothing store and buys a bunch of gift certificates with a credit card from a third party. Then Heidi shows up with a friend and spends the gift certificates, racking up $20,000 worth of clothes. The person whose credit card it was noticed the charges and called the cops, who took in Heidi on possible grand theft charges. It was just some girl and a salesperson. They set me up for some credit card fraud thing. It was really ridiculous. I'm like, I'm not that type. I wear sweatpants. 
If I'd wanted to, at one time, I could buy Porsches and line them from my house all the way to Neiman Marcus. All right, let's take a moment to talk about another charismatic Jewish person deeply associated with the city of Los Angeles, David Lee Roth, the original lead singer of the band Van Halen. Roth was, like Heidi Fleiss, a charismatic, talkative, and funny Jew who spent his formative years in the suburbs of Los Angeles. He also came from a bohemian family. His uncle Manny Roth founded Greenwich Village's influential beatnik folk club Café Wa, where countless acts were launched, including Bob Dylan. David Lee Roth was born in Indiana and shuffled off to Pasadena in his teens. At Pasadena City College, he met Edward Ludwig van Halen and his brother, the Dutch-Indonesian musical prodigies with whom he would form the band Van Halen. Many years later in the early 90s, Van Halen is one of the biggest musical acts in the world, and their lead singer is Sammy Hagar. But David Lee Roth is enjoying a pretty successful solo career, if not the height of success he enjoyed with Van Halen. Roth, one of the all-time presences on the Sunset Strip, has decamped from not just L.A., but California entirely in the early 90s to the city of New York. In a YouTube video monologue from 2012 called Romance, David Lee Roth tells a story about a girl that he met in New York at what he calls a face place called Bar Tabak. According to David Lee Roth's story, he and Charlie Sheen were hanging out one night, allegedly chopping up coke with the butt of a gun, as you do, and talking about the women in their lives. Roth says he's seeing a corn-fed girl-next-door type in New York who likes to wear schoolgirl outfits, which is not his particular kink, despite hot for teacher. This woman is always flying out to work in Los Angeles, where she sees a client who likes his girls in schoolgirl outfits. Through this conversation, David Lee Roth and Charlie Sheen realize they are both seeing the same girl, a Heidi girl, most likely Samantha Burdett, based on the description. Sometimes when I would lie down to go to sleep at night, I would think about the girls I had out there. Santro, Pay, London, Las Vegas, the Peninsula Hotel, Acapulco, New York, and all the money they would make and all the money I would make. And it would make me feel so good. Let's also talk about one alleged Heidi girl story before she became a Heidi girl. There's a woman named Brandy McLean who worked for Heidi. She was busted in the eventual raid, more on that later, and managed the Heidi Ware store, also more on that later. So, there's also a Brandy McLean who was involved with a famous early skateboarding star with a crazy fucked up story. It seems likely that they are the same Brandy McLean, but I couldn't confirm it. Heidi's Brandy McLean was a San Diego Community College student who worked for her on weekends. Her Brandy from San Diego seems to match up with the story of this Brandy from San Diego. Allegedly, Brandy McLean was a 17-year-old blonde from a wealthy Arizona family in 1987 when she and her best friend Jessica Bergsten, another beautiful blonde rich girl, met a pro skateboarder named Mark Gator Anthony who was passing through town on a skate tour. Gator and Brandy spent the weekend together partying and he started flying her out from Tucson, where they'd met, to San Diego, where he lived. 
He invited her to move in with him for good at his new mountain skate ranch next to his friend Tony Hawk, who, along with Gator, was one of skating's big breakthrough stars in the 80s. Brandy didn't like being isolated at the ranch, so they moved to a condo in the beach town of Carlsbad, where they could spend days at the beach and nights partying and bar hopping. We would get high every night. We wouldn't do coke every night, but we'd do bong hits or we'd go to the sandbar at the end of the street and get fucked up. Then we'd hang out in his jacuzzi, get drunk off our asses, and go in and have wild sex all night. Brandy McLean. Gator flew Brandy out with him to skate competitions around the world. He bought her two cars. Gator's friends, including his brother, saw Brandy as a gold digger, but also thought the couple were genuinely in love. Brandy appeared in his skate videos and modeled with him in his Vision Skatewear print ads. The couple also appeared together in the music video for Tom Petty's Free Fallen during the skate ramp sequence. But Gator's dominance as a skater quickly waned as he was outshone by new skaters elaborating on the tricks he and Tony Hawk made famous. Vert skating, like he did, was being overtaken by street skating, leaving skaters like Gator behind in the dust. Then he fell out of a window in Germany on tour and became a born-again Christian, which Brandy did not care for. He tried bringing her to church, but he also didn't want to have sex with her anymore until they were married. We literally had sex five times a day. We were so in love. Then he started saying, we can't have sex unless we get married. And I'm like, Wait a minute, we've been going out for four years, having mad sex for four years. We can't have sex anymore? I can't deal with this. Later. Brandy broke up with Gator and moved in with her mother, who also lived in San Diego. She started dating other people, and Gator responded in a way that didn't really go with his new saintly demeanor by calling her mom's house and leaving messages saying Brandy was a cunt who would fry in hell. Brandy came back to her mom's house one evening to find a window broken into and all of Gator's gifts to her now gone. She even tried to patch it up, but Gator was too far gone and picked a fight with her the moment she got in his car. He was still so mad about the guy I was seeing. He's the one that told me to go out and find one of my surfer friends to party with, so I did. I found this hot little blonde surfer guy, 6'1", and Mark was furious. He was driving out in the middle of this like nowhere road out where my parents live, and he turned to me with this really scary, serious look in his eye. And his voice got all deep, you know, and he sounded like the devil. He says, you know what? I should take you out of the desert right now. I should drive you out right in the middle of the night and beat the shit out of you and leave you there, and I would get away with it, because everybody would know that you deserve it. I started crying and begging him to take me home like right now I'm like my mother knows where I am and he took me back to get back at Brandy for dumping him Gator murdered her best friend Jessica Bergston who he somehow believed bore the responsibility for his breakup with McLean he equivocated the two best friends in his head both tall gorgeous free-spirited Arizona blondes He told the police that Brandy and Jessica were of the same mold and that he hated them both. Gator, increasingly fanatical about God as his career diminished, had lost the plot. 
Heads up if you want to skip ahead about 30 seconds through a very violent and fucked up part of the story. Gator tied up and raped Jessica Bergsten, beating her with a steering wheel lock. He got paranoid that neighbors would hear her screaming for help, so he strangled her inside a surfboard bag. There's a great documentary by Helen Stickler about this story called Stoked, The Rise and Fall of Gator. Patricia Arquette also tweeted that she once went on a date with Gator where she got a bad feeling and gave him a fake number. A few years later, he murdered Jessica Bergsten. She was an incredibly intelligent, free-spirited girl. She wanted to have fun and nothing else mattered. We would go to Mexico together and she would get so drunk that she would leave me there. If I couldn't get into bars because we were underage and had fake IDs, she would leave me outside for three hours waiting while she drank. But we were best friends. We were very much alike. It was like, we're going to have the very best lives and we're going to have them now. So, if it is the same Brandy McLean, she would have started working for Heidi a few years after all of this horrible shit happened. There's a harmful stereotype that only traumatized women get into sex work, which is obviously not true. Something that has always stayed with me is something the porn director Jackie St. James said to me defending the porn industry, which is that there are traumatized women and domestic abuse survivors in every industry on earth. But there's a tendency, particularly in mainstream media, to project all of the world's badness and exploitation onto the sex industry, as if workers can't be exploited in any industry. A high-paying sex work job in a safe environment, like Heidi provided, is not exploitative. What is exploitative is, let's say, forcing warehouse workers to have to piss in jars. By the end of 1992, Heidi seemingly has it all, despite many looming dark clouds. A successful business, more money than she knows what to do with, and a sorority house full of Heidi girls to party with every night. She is even, allegedly, dating her movie star crush, James Caan, who is technically married. Heidi tells friends she visits James Caan on the Texas set of 1992 neo-noir Flesh and Bone. James Caan later will deny that this ever happened. Heidi is making money almost faster than she can spend it. She loves spending it because she knows if she gets caught, it'll all go up in smoke. She loves thinking about how the money stacks up around the globe as she sleeps. She sends a girl for a date on the East Coast who calls, concerned about how she is supposed to carry $80,000 in cash that might seem suspicious to authorities. So Heidi tells her to strap the money all over her body to get through the airport, and she gets through fine. The $80,000 was for a single blowjob. Anytime is the right time. Every woman is the most beautiful woman on earth. Next time on Heidi World. Heidi's high-end escort service hits its peak and encounters some steep precipices and gets ever more careless about running her mouth.
Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.